Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Missing Mora Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How's it going, Tim? I'm doing well. We're here in the Crawl Space Studios. Wormtown. Here in Wormtown today, talking about a vile serial killer. Yeah, a vile is a way to put it. Infamous, notorious. Disgusting. Exacting, deliberate. I mean, this is a, this guy was a professional serial killer. Yes, we are talking about Israeli Keys. Yeah, and and specifically the connection to the Maura Murray case, which if you if you don't know, you haven't heard, Israel Keys referred to the East Coast and New Hampshire as his stomping grounds, and there has never been a known murder that he committed in New Hampshire, uh, but we do know that he was in New Hampshire, and we also know that he was unaccounted for at the exact time that Maura was missing by the FBI. He was unaccounted for. Right. We're talking from, I believe, the 6th of February to the 13th of February. 2004. 2004. There was no known uh, track. They knew where he was before and they knew where he was after. Uh, But there's no known track. And this is somebody who buried murder kits across the country. And we know that this is somebody who was very, like I said before, deliberate in his actions. Also, we want to give thanks to our new intern, Lulu, who helped us put this episode together. So in addition to Chloe, who joins us for the discussion, we also had the help researching this episode by our intern, new intern, Lulu. Thanks, Lulu. Now, the listeners of this show might remember that we did a show with the amazing psychic, the fascinating person, uh, Lori Bruno. And Lori Bruno is now our guest for our Crawl Space Live Show March 25th, 6 p.m., Davis Square, Somerville, which is right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. If you're in the area or if you're not in the area, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be great. We're going to talk to Lori about her life, her ability, and we'll ask her about the Maura Murray case and what she thinks about that. And even if you don't believe in psychics, this isn't a show to go to. I would say this is a show to go to more so if you're a skeptic, as we are. I mean... You should be skeptical, naturally. You should be skeptical of most things in life. And if you're skeptical of this, what a good opportunity to come by. Ask Lori some questions. 
you'll probably walk out of there feeling a little bit different. Also, we have launched a Patreon page for our other podcast, Crawl Space. So check that out at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. Some good content over there. And if you are a subscriber on Patreon, you can get a discount, $5 off your ticket, when you enter the promo passcode for the, uh, for the live show with Lori. So you get a little added bonus there. In addition to this crazy entertaining behind the scenes kind of candid footage that we have going on okay so thank you very much for listening follow us on twitter at maura murray doc we're on facebook and instagram as well thank you very much Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim, here today in the Empty Frames studios with Lance and Chloe. What's up, y'all? What's going on? How you doing? I'm great today. How about you, Chloe? I'm great, too. Thank you. Today, we are talking about one of the most vile people I've ever read about, ever researched, serial killer, Israel Keys. We touched upon him in our Bobby Chacon interview, and as we talked to Bobby Chacon, we realized uh, how much of a character he actually is. Not directly in Mora's story, but the type of person, a profile of that type of uh, serial killer, how organized he was. And his name always comes up because there's a period of time that is unaccounted for with Israeli keys. And you're right. He's, 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 a, uh, he's a horrendous and very successful serial killer. And he comes up here specifically because of his involvement in the murder of Bill and Lorraine Courier in Essex, Vermont, which sort of brings us to that general region where these disappearances happened. Yeah, so that's about 75 miles away from where Mora went missing. So to take it to uh, Israeli Keys as a serial killer, if this is his profession, his resume starts in 1996, right? Yes, he was active from 1996 to 2012 and committed murders all across the United States. Tell us a little bit about his characteristics as a serial killer. He stashed what they call now murder kits around the United States in wooded areas so that when he traveled to an area, he wouldn't have to go to a hardware store or wherever you would go to buy murder weapons. So his mode of operation was that he would take so-called murder trips. He would travel long distances and find victims that he had no connection to. He had no specific victim profile, and he would travel extraordinary lengths. When he killed Bill and Lorraine Courier, he flew to Chicago from the west coast of the United States and then rented a car and drove all the way to Vermont. And killed them randomly? Yes. Had he? Did he use his murder kit on them? I believe so. So he used a murder kit that he had buried in the past and went to this spot where he buried this murder kit retrieved these items, and then found his victims. Yes. He had formally, once he was captured, he formally confessed to, I believe, four murders in Washington State, one in New York, one in New Jersey. But there's probably many more out there that we don't know about. It's estimated to be at least 11, and he did it all across the United States, never going in the same place twice. Correct me if I'm wrong, but... He wasn't doing it for any sort of publicity. Towards the end of his time in prison, towards the end of his life, 
didn't he 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 had said i i don't want this to be out there in the public I, i'm not looking for the media i'm not looking for my daughter to uh you know put my name in the computer and have and have it come up uh as like a prolific serial killer is that something that's that's typical because i feel like there's a misconception that serial killers seek attention he was specifically talking about sexual abuse of the victims. That was what he didn't want out there specifically. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't just the murders. It was he didn't want the public to know what he did to the bodies. Gotcha. Right. Okay. I don't know if there was a lot of truth to that statement because in my opinion, I feel like he wanted to get caught at the end for that glory. You know, he, that was the word he used. He said, "I don't want the glory." And well, a theory behind why people commit mass murder, why men do in particular, is because it's a sort of backwards way of gaining status. If you're not wealthy or good looking or have a good job, you don't have that status. So basketball players and musicians, they don't have any trouble getting women because they have that status. So they're kind of trying to find a reverse way to get that. So, you know, convicted felons like Ted Bundy, other murderers like that, they get love letters, they get married once they're in prison. So that's a theory behind why some people take that direction in life, particularly adolescent school shooters that's been discussed. But he was very good at not getting caught. You know, like I said, he paid in cash. He turned off his phone and he was active for over a decade before he got caught. And then he was captured in Alaska after the abduction and murder of 18 year old Samantha Koenig. He was not clever in that in the commission of that crime at all he made it very easy for the police to capture him some would theorize that he made it that he wanted to get caught like that was that's kind of what i knew it i would argue that he did want to get caught and that's why he completely changed his method toward the end so the way that he got caught in samantha koenig's murder was he abducted her from her place of work which was i believe a coffee shop the abduction was caught on surveillance camera and unlike the other murders, he actually requested and was granted a ransom. After he killed Samantha Koenig, he staged her body to look alive behind rather a four-day-old copy of a Anchorage newspaper. So he demanded $30,000, got the money, and was caught in Texas because he was using Samantha's debit card and was making withdrawals from that ransom. So it was easily traced to him, and I think he knew better. I think he knew he would get caught, and I think he wanted that attention. I think it's pretty obvious that he knew better based on his past uh, um, you know, preventative measures that he would take so he wouldn't get caught. Well, Bobby Chacon said on, on these very airwaves that um, he did it because he needed money. That was the only time he had ever needed money in his reign of terror, and that's why he asked for this ransom money. So you think it was coming from a place of desperation rather than intentionally trying to get caught? That's what Bobby Chacon said, and he was uh, there, one of the people who interviewed him after uh, he was apprehended. Hmm. Interesting. It's, it's possible. He made money through unconventional means, like to fund his habit. He, I think, committed a lot of robberies and breaking and entering in people's homes. But, you know, on the side, he was a contractor and a handyman. In 2007, he opened his own business. I believe it was called Keys Construction in Alaska. So he did have other means of making money, but on the side, he committed a lot of crimes to get money. He did rob banks at one point. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So an escalation of criminal behavior. 
Yeah, could we say it's an escalation or it's a it's a, it's a supportive measure of his behavior? Well, when did he rob the banks? Do we know? Was that before he started killing people? My understanding was that it was all it was during that same time. He would do it to fund his habit of killing people because he would travel and had to buy all those tickets. And I don't know how lucrative his business was and how he was doing financially before that. I mean, he was active from 1996 after he served in the U.S. Army. So I don't know what his employment situation really was before then. Okay, so he probably so it had to be during the same period. Uh, tell me more about this, this army. How long was he in the army? So he was born in Utah in 1978 and was homeschooled in his Mormon family. They later moved to Washington State. His first reported murder was in 1996, which was two years before he joined the U.S. Army in 1998. He served in the U.S. Army um, through 2001 at Fort Lewis in Fort Hood, and he also fought overseas in Egypt. He was actually a decorated soldier. He had many awards and medals and whatnot, including uh, the Army Achievement Medal and Army Service Ribbon. Were, the, were there any um, indicators of like a reclusive or a um, behavior that would suggest that this was uh, possible, that he had this growing in, in him? Well, he not to the point where anyone thought to report him to authorities or anything we know like that, but people did say that he was quiet, withdrawn, and a heavy drinker. A heavy drinker. Is that something that's common, that the self-medication? I know Ted Bundy was a, was a heavy drinker. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's, like, I'd be interested in looking into the research to see if there's some sort of significant correlation with substance abuse and the, the instinct to commit homicide. But I actually recently read a study the other day that with juvenile offenders that commit homicide, there is a significant correlation with um, alcohol and other substance use disorders. So it's it's possible and likely that it's connected to adult offenders as well. So he was raised a Mormon. Is does, does religion or how you're raised? I mean, obviously that factors into it. But is there anything that stands out to you that was specific in how he was raised a Mormon? He had like going back to his upbringing, like there was an aversion there. You know, he hates Christianity, but he was raised in the Church of the Latter Day Saints. So there was some sort of rejection going on there, and it's probably because he didn't fit in with them, didn't meet those normative standards. I don't know how religious his family was. I know that he was not religious himself as an adult. I'm pretty sure he was described as either as an atheist, I'm pretty sure. So he didn't carry that with him, which which says something. He probably didn't have a strong connection to it. I think it's pretty easy to feel like an outsider if if you're not, you know, up to those normative standards. And wouldn't that lead to joining um, the army, joining, a, you know, to be a part of something? That would make sense, and he probably also wanted to just distance himself and get away from it. And I don't, yeah, I don't think that people that join the army have like sociopathic tendencies or have a proclivity to kill. But I understand why someone with the proclivity to kill would be interested in joining the army. I think that's fair to say. I th- I think it's not only fair. I think it it's realistic. I think it actually happens. Yeah. Doesn't in no way doesn't mean every uh, military uh, person. Did that right? It, yeah, it's just, for that it's just thinking about what kind of career would someone who has homicidal tendencies be attracted to, and it's probably a job where there's a chance you might be in that position, like a police officer or a soldier, a podcaster. Podcaster. Well, we know truck drivers are one of the most common jobs for serial killers. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if you want to, you know, focus It'd on be successful and be successful. prostitutes and right 
and get away with it. I yeah. mean, the, they it's obvious that if you drop a body over a state line, it makes the solving the crime a little bit more difficult. And when you're just passing through, you have no connections to that area and people don't know you and you have no connection to the victim. And that's how Israel Keys got away with it for so long. Um, he never had a connection to his victims. There was no way to trace it back to him. There wasn't even a connection to the surrounding geographical area because he was usually traveling from across the country. I have a quote here from U.S. Attorney Craig Warner who said he would sometimes just go to an isolated place in the mountains or the woods and he would wait. And upon talking about what kind of crimes Keyes committed, he said, quote, What I would be looking for is disappearances that are utterly unexplained, situations where a person simply vanishes, where there's almost no physical evidence and there's some possible connection to travel by Keyes. And so obviously we're doing this episode on the podcast Missing Maura Murray to ask ourselves, ask this community, ask the world, is there a chance Israel Keyes could have murdered Maura Murray? I think in the when we first started this and we heard um, his name come up, it was uh, you almost think about him like a, a character that doesn't really exist because he, you know, he was already dead and it seemed like the case was closed on him. And we had a lot of people saying to us, like, well, what are the op- you know, what's the odds of a opportunistic serial killer? And after we explored that, we sort of chuckled it, not chuckled it off, but we dismissed it. And th- and then we start hearing without us really trying, you know, we, we connect with Bobby Chacon and Chloe and we start hearing these things about, about keys exactly doing that, like being an opportunistic serial killer and, and, and like you said, hiding in the woods and just waiting and that missing period of time, um, that is, that has been documented. Let's get into that. February 6th and February 13th. Yes. So after Israel keys died, the FBI suspected that there was, a lot of unsolved cases that he was responsible for, but he was dead and it was extremely difficult to connect him to those cases. So they actually released this interactive map timeline to sort of under the context of asking the public for help. That timeline, I was looking for it last week and it's not up anymore, but I did write down because I was looking through that timeline, curious about Maura Murray and Brianna Maitland and possible involvement there he was ruled out formally in the Brianna Maitland case by the FBI. But there's no mention of Maura Murray and any of the FBI websites talking about Israel Keys. Like, that's never been implied by the FBI. It's just kind of something I was looking into out of curiosity. And I saw on the map that he was unaccounted for from February 6th to February 13th. He, without permission, he left the state, rented a car in Salt Lake City, Utah, and returned it with over 500 miles on it. It's possible that he was on a murder trip. That's kind of what it seems like. Why would you rent a car and return it with over 500 miles on it? And I know that's not enough to get someone to and from, for instance, Haverhill, New Hampshire. But like we said, he would take indirect and extraordinary lengths, like flying to Chicago and then driving to Vermont. So he flew to Chicago rented a car and then drove it to Vermont. Do we know, did he drive that back to Chicago? I believe so. I believe he returned the car at the original uh, spot. So that's interesting. So there is some precedent for him doing this kind of thing. Right. So it it seems like it was a murder trip. Not only precedent, it's anything other than that would be against type for him. It would be against his MO. Yes. This is his MO. Uh, The only change is that 
he was he did it um he technically broke the law when he did it yes yeah i'm not sure why he didn't have permission to leave the states probably because he was under probation or parole for something like because he was he committed arson and robbery and things like that and he was probably caught for some of those before but never for murder he was he was under the radar for that for a long time so it is his mo in salt lake city utah to and this is this goes with his mo rents a car and returns it to salt lake city utah so i mean it's possible that he drove that car 250 miles to an airport and then flew somewhere to cover his tracks and to be indirect about it right but would the fbi know if he took a flight during that they probably would unless he did it under a different identity i don't know about that okay but i think whatever he did after he rented that car is unknown to the fbi Mm -hmm. he's unaccounted for and just to kind of refocus mora went missing on february 9th 2004 in this time range when he went on a trip was from the 6th to the 13th and when asked if keys had killed someone in new hampshire fbi special agent jolene godin said quote we just don't know it is certainly possible end quote given his familiarity with new hampshire and the east coast which he referred to as his quote stomping grounds And he never confessed, or we don't know of any murders that he committed in New Hampshire. And we know that he never committed murder in the same place twice. Right. So that's kind of another interesting part is that we don't have a murder, or known murder that he's committed in New Hampshire. So you would imagine he's saying that, and and we just kind of talked about how he doesn't really want the as as much press as some serial killers past. Um, Doesn't isn't looking for the glory. Actually, that's one of his quotes here as well. So. Is it safe to assume that he did kill someone in New Hampshire? He confessed to the FBI that he took a trip, a week-long trip, starting on April 9th, 2009, where he checked in to the Highlander Inn in Manchester, New Hampshire. So we have a confirmation that he was in New Hampshire at some point. He did not commit his abduction murder in New Hampshire, though. He just stayed there. He told investigators that he traveled to New Jersey, abducted a woman, and then killed her and disposed of her body in New York. He subsequently robbed a bank in upstate New York and then flew back to Seattle within that week, a week later. This is all during his, this is a, a, a murder extravaganza crime yeah, trip. murder trip, crime trip. And he did not reveal the identity of the woman. We haven't confirmed that the story is true. He said when asked about who the woman was, he said, I'm not giving a name today. So during his interviews after his capture, he kind of taunted investigators with little hints like that. And basically, he talked for a little while and then eventually said, I'm not giving you any more. Yeah, it's, it seems like most serial killers, they want or they they admit to more or they, they talk about more killings that they've done than they actually have done. But this guy seems like the opposite. He like the FBI suspects him of more than he's willing to admit to. Yeah. And then he killed himself. Well, I was going to say, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that he had a predetermined destiny for himself? Yes. He 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 was only going to admit to the amount of murders that were going to get him executed because he even said, basically, if you guys aren't going to do it, I'll do it. Yeah. And he said, if I'm dead, the investigation from the federal government's point of view is pretty much closed. That was a direct quote. Right. So he kind of goes against type on the what we know of, of serial killers, although I'm not sure how that how that works. You know, if you have like a Ted Bundy or 
uh, Gacy, John Wayne Gacy, if you have one of those serial killers and they tell you that they killed 33 people just to ensure that they get life in prison or, you know, they have to be thinking about the justice system. Right. Why are, you know, why are they, they're, they're going to be in prison their entire life and they're going to die. So, hey, I might as well, I might as well go in with a reputation. But then even, even Ted Bundy was trying to get his, uh, uh, execution delayed by you know claiming to you know maybe I'll profile this you know this, right. this, this crime and this this killer yeah Keys did not want uh, the satis- the state or the or the federal government to have the satisfaction of when he was going to die he wanted to do it himself and uh, here's another quote from him the bottom line is that we already know how this ends if things don't go the way I want I don't need you guys and so that was. He was referring to if he didn't get the death penalty, that he would just take matters into his own hands and kill himself. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl. An instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street. Accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson. And look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? 
For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. had this plan that he did not intend on serving a life sentence or a long sentence. He killed himself pretty quickly after he was apprehended. So that kind of, I guess, somewhat goes against what I was saying before about how he wanted that status and he wanted that glory and notoriety, especially in the context of uh, living out that glory because he killed himself. So he couldn't really live to experience that. But Maybe he just wanted that long-term notoriety. He didn't want to suffer the consequences. He just wanted to be dead, but still have that name recognition out there and be a legend, so to speak. I think it speaks to how he wanted to control everything. He has he has control over everything, and it seems to me like he intentionally let, lets up the reins on that control when he gets caught by by literally tracking, you know, allowing them to track. I mean, he's, he's smart enough to know that if he's making withdrawals from a ransom that he demanded and was paid, he's making withdrawals. They're tracking these movements. So he gives up a little bit, uh, enough control where he gets caught, but he wants people to know, like, this is on his terms. Right. And he wants people to know, especially law enforcement, I'm going to give you just enough, and if you don't, if, if it doesn't end the way I want it to end, then the balls in my court. I can, I, I will end this. I don't know if that means that he didn't want the glory or he wanted to preserve the glory. He wanted to preserve his reputation or maybe he did actually just want it to end. I think that he liked maybe like the mystique of it too. And when you're talking about control, I think he got off on the fact that everything that the FBI really has, except for the Samantha Koenig evidence in her case, everything else that they have, he's basically given to them. And I think that he liked that. He was pretty much in control of that. So he would give them something and then kind of just keep the rest to himself. Here's another quote from Keyes. Everybody makes too big of a deal about this stuff. There are bigger, the bigger problems in the world we should be worrying about. <laughs> what is that? What is? Where is your head at? When, and he's talking about... Everyone, I'm just one guy. He doesn't think it's a big deal. I'm just one guy killing just a couple people when you have genocide happening in other countries. Is that like, is that really what he's saying? I yeah. think it's like, obviously, like I think that he lacks insight into the gravity of the things that he's done. And I don't know if it's just that he's naturally that way or he was naturally that way or if that's just something that he's adapted to and has convinced himself to believe that what he's doing really isn't that big of a deal, that he's not causing that much harm. And that's how he justifies his actions. That's how he's able to do it. Can we go into Samantha Koenig a bit? Because the way she's abducted and her, you know, from her abduction to when, uh, you know, when he takes those pictures of her, 
it's it's like a nightmare. Uh, she was a uh, a barista. She worked at a coffee uh, a coffee shop in Anchorage, Alaska, and Keys kidnapped her from that place of employment on February first, two thousand twelve. Um, stole her debit card, murdered her the following day, uh, stole other property, uh, and then police uh, also stated that he had sexually assaulted her uh, before murdering her. Uh, after she died, Keys left on a cruise. Yep. Out of New Orleans. Yep. Uh leaving uh her body in a in a tool shed. And then when he gets back, that's when he takes photographs of her body with a like you said, he had the um the old newspaper, the Anchorage um Daily News. Uh he takes photographs and try and props her up to make her look alive. Yes. And he and he gets the uh the the ransom from that. He sewed her eyelids open? Did I make that up? Uh, yeah. Didn't Bobby no. Chacon say that? Yes. So she she so he sewed her eyelids open. We're really saying that those are words that are that are. That's what Bobby we're saying that actually happened in real life. I just want to recap. He go. He's in Anchorage, Alaska. Goes to a coffee shop, takes this uh, young woman. Somehow has enough money to go on a cruise. Maybe he stole it from her. Who knows? Maybe he booked the cruise before. But guy needed some time off. Takes a trip down to New Orleans. Heads out on a cruise. Comes back. Take goes into the tool shed that he kept her body, makes her look alive, and this is the last victim. This is the one that he demands a thirty thousand dollars, which is delivered, which they use to track him and right. catch him. Correct. He entered the coffee stand wearing a ski mask, ordered a coffee, and it should be noted that he had never met her before. They did not know each other. He pulled out a gun, demanded money, so he probably got some money from robbing that coffee stand too and um yeah pulled out a gun and then abducted her from there ordered her to walk out with him she actually escaped for a brief moment she ran away but he tackled her to the ground and ended up getting her into his truck which is just very sad and it is true that he sewed her eyelids open that was confirmed what the f yeah some evil evil shit and it and it is true that he robbed houses and banks to fund his murder sprees i remember when that story broke too in 2012 and i didn't get too into it because it was just terrifying i remember looking yeah. at it at kind of surface level and not actually not digging that deep because it was so depressing and scary yeah it reminded me so much of um robin williams in uh insomnia because that takes place in alaska as well yeah and he's a serial killer in alaska yeah and that movie was so unsettling to me that when i saw this story and started thinking about it yeah and, and it is it's like a movie thing like these things don't happen but guys these things happen how ca- this how uncatchable is this guy like what or was this guy i mean the only reason he got caught is because he demanded money because right. he wanted to get caught. up he knew that he knew he was going to to get caught i don't know about that but i but i know that he changed his methods and that's why he got caught before sorry to interrupt oh, no, it's but, fine. I, but before cell phones <laughs> were even known to have you know, a tracking, you know, commonly known that you could track cell phones, he turned his cell phone off. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He, he knows that if he demands $30,000, it's put into a bank. He's using the debit card from the bank account. He, I mean, he's got to be, he's gonna, he must have lost, either he knew it or he lost his mind. It's possible. The way that he demanded the ransom actually like sounds like a movie plot. He got a typewriter and typed up the note, photocopied the photograph of the staged corpse, and... Put the note in a public park 
under um, a memorial flyer for a dog named Albert. He then used Samantha's cell phone, texted her boyfriend, and said that it would be found under Albert. He didn't no mention of the park? Yes. He said that there is a ransom note, quote, under Albert, and I believe he specified where the park was. But just leaving a little hint like that is... Eerie. Very eerie, and it sounds like he was trying to be. And uh, congrats to the uh, Insane Clown Posse for being his favorite band. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that makes me think that he wanted notoriety and to have some kind of legacy is he left a poem after he'd killed himself. Where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Back in your ride, the night is still young. Streetlights push back the black I neat rose. Off to the right, a graveyard appears. Lines of stone. Bodies molder below. Turn away quick. Bob your head to the seat. As straight through that stop sign, you roll loaded truck with lights off, slams into you broadside, your flesh smashed as metal explodes. You may have been free. You loved living your lie. Fate had its own scheme. Crushed like a bug, you still die. That's just like the first quarter of it. Um, barf. Terrible. Barf. Yeah, it's even it's even bad poetry. It is. It's, it was, it's not good. Um, I looked into your eyes. They were so dark, warm and trusting, as though you had not a worry or care. The more guileless the game, the better potential to fill up these pools with your fear. Your wet lips were a promise of a secret unspoken. Nervous laugh as it burst like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. Oh, geez. That, that verse was actually okay. <laughs> it was, okay, it was um, okay, but doesn't it just reek of like... He's trying really he's just hard. Trying he's trying yeah. so Ooh. hard. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, actually, Richard Ramirez, like, yeah, like taunting the, taunting the press with a pentagram, pentagram on his yeah. Uh, that, palm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that. That makes me think he wanted some attention. He's yeah. trying really hard. But I guess in retrospect, you, you are talking about a guy who had a lengthy career as a serial killer, so... Violent metamorphosis, emerge my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. Stockholm sweetie. That verse is also terrible. So bad. Is he talking about Stockholm syndrome? Stockholm syndrome. My Stockholm sweetie. What a dick. Now, we're we're not pushing any particular theory. We never... We never do that. We're not, you know, we're not saying that he did anything in regards to Maura Murray. We're not, you know, we're not trying to push that. You know, everyone look into Keys as the culprit here. Uh, at the very least, if Keys is ruled out, or if we are ruling Keys out, whether you know internally or you know officially, he gets ruled out in in Moore's case. At the very least, there's a profile of somebody that we have at, in the early days talked about being such a long shot, an opportunistic serial killer. And there's a profile of Israeli Keys. I would be very curious to see a profile of the type of person that would abduct Mora in an opportunistic way. And I think that. Um people that are listening to this podcast do a lot of research on their own. Like there's a lot of armchair detectives out there that are doing this. We say citizen detectives now. I like that better. Me too. That's nice. Um, So citizen detectives on their own are looking at potential suspects. And I think, like we said before, Israel Keys, his name comes up. So I think it's nice to 
you know, be able to say, you know, he was ruled out in Brianna Maitland's case. And here's what we know about his whereabouts around the time Mora went missing and what his general profile and method was. Now, isn't that interesting that he's ruled out in a situation in a case that is a month later? So it's so detailed that they can rule him out in that that uh, circumstance. And they know that there's a gray area there between the 6th and the 13th of February of the same year. Yeah. John Douglas, a former chief of the FBI's elite serial crime unit and author of Mindhunter, says a very conservative estimate is that there are between 35 to 50 active serial killers in the United States at any given time. 35 to 50 to 50. And that's a conservative estimate, conservative estimate. So so say there's at least 35. Just say that. Say there's at least 35. That's terrifying. There's 35. Just even say there's only 35. That's horrifying. And I wonder how many of those. These, so these are active. So these are ones that I have not been caught. Not been caught. Maybe not even detected by authorities that we know of. Possibly. There's a lot of missing people out there. Right. And to just formally like define what the scope of a serial killer is, it's someone who murders three or more people in the service of, of what they say is abnormal psychological gratification. So fulfilling some sort of need or desire whether it's assertive asserting one's power or anger sexual proclivities whatever right. not There's... for money or right. like revenge right not a crime of passion right um and the murders usually take place over more than a month and include a significant period of time between them so killers like that active in the united states is 35 at least at least i wonder how many murder kits are out there just buried. Yeah, that's a concept that I have never heard of or read about before Israel Keys or since. Murder kits? Have you ever heard of a killer doing that? Well, I'm, only by watching shows like Dexter where he's got like a murder kit, and but never anything that's been pre-planned in different states and buried and not touched for years later. God, we can only hope that the one or one of the 35 or all the 35 serial killers that are active or more are like Dexter and killing bad people and not good people. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the case. <laughs> That'd be nice. Speaking of that, I just want to, uh, my last thing is just a quote that uh, he gave May 24th of 2012. He says, yeah, I'm a bad guy who tried to escape. Let's be honest. Nobody really thought I was a good guy before that, so... <laughs> so when you're thinking about, you know, motivations, it sounds like he, he was motivated by quite a bit of anger that maybe was displaced upon strangers, and he was trying to work through that anger in that indirect way. But basically, if you're try if we're right here trying to picture, draw up the perfect serial killer, a person who cannot be caught, an indestructible maniacal force out there this is basically the picture we're painting but in 2004 he's 27 and that's right in the, the prime of his life prime of his career
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.